want to do. I want you to raise your hand, and not yet, but I want you to raise your hand in a second. If you are a results-driven person, if, if you, know, you know the process, that's fine, you know, getting there, that's fine, but at the end of the day, what matters to you is results, and you know, results in whatever area of your life, whether that's relational or financial or, you know, yokedness, you know, what kind of whatever it is for you. Um, all right, so if, 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 you know, again, if you're a results-driven person, raise your hand, one, two, three, go. Very good, all the type A people in the room. Now we know who you are. Um, now, just, just tell you about me. I, I'm, I'm also, I'm, I'm not being critical. I am a very results-driven type of person. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ben Kimford, by the way. I'm the pastor here at Downtown Community Church. Um, but I actually am not an employee here at DCC. Um, I run a meat company. It's called Registers Meat Company. We make registered smoked pork sausage. At this point, it's not even a shameless plug. It is just a plug, you know. So if you've never tried it, you should try it. You know, it's, it's, it's like giving an offering because it's a pastor's company. So, you know, but it, you just get sausage out of it. So it's a win-win. You pay my mortgage. I feed your family. Okay, so anyways, so the... Um, so, so I run this meat company called Registers Meat Company. We have a phenomenal time. It's over in Cottondale, Florida. Anybody ever been to Cottondale, Florida? <laughs> That's exactly what I thought would happen. There's one person that wooed, and the other person wooed probably because they felt bad for the other person that wooed. Because Cottondale is like the middle of the armpit of Florida. It's like Tallahassee's kind of the armpit, but that's like the armpit of the armpit. That's like the really sweaty part of the armpit that nobody really wants to go to. It's called Cottondale. And every morning when I go to the office in Cottondale, Florida, the first thing I do, again, I'm, I'm kind of a results-driven person, first thing I do is I love to know that we're moving the ball down the field. So I get in the office, you know, say hey to everybody at the plant, say hey to, you know, the one person in the office, we're not a huge company. And I sit down on my computer, the first thing I pull up every single morning is our profit and loss sheet, our P&Ls. And the first thing I do is I look at how we're doing currently in this week. I'll do a, you know, a sectioned report, you know, this past Sunday, Sunday to the next Saturday and see how we're doing. I see how we did last week. Has there been any new bills that came in and affected our last week's profit and loss? I check the month just to see. I check the entire year to see how did this week affect the month, which affected the year. And in fact, most times, as you know, maybe if you're familiar, if you do reports like this, you don't have all the information. And that doesn't even matter. You just kind of forecast, okay, I think we're going to have this bill, I think we're going to have that bill, and I think kind of so on and so forth. And, and for me, I just love to know that I'm making progress. And whatever area of life it's in, I am a progress-driven, I am a results-driven person. Now, here's what's probably true about all of us, that you might be an extremely results-driven person, or you might be not so much. But for all of us, there are, there's an area or there are multiple areas, perhaps, in your life that you care about results or you care about outcomes. Now, Again, different for all of us probably, but depending on what you value, you care and I care how things turn out. For instance, for some of you, you have a career goal. You have a career result. You have what you want to end up doing. You have a degree that you want to end up with. You have an internship that you want to end up with. You have a financial goal, maybe based on your career goal, that at the end of the day, you'd like to live in this city. You'd like to have about this type of a lifestyle. You'd like to have about this much income. You'd like to retire maybe with this much money if you're at that point in life. For some of you, you got a relational goal. You know, for some of you, in fact, you know, Christians, man, we are so weird about this. You went to a camp one time, you know, chicks, you maybe can identify with this. You went to a camp one time, and all the chicks sat around in this little circle, and you came up with this list of goals that you want your guy to have, you know. Hashtag, you know, bay goals. And so you came up, you know, he's got to be tall, and he's got to be dark and handsome, and you, know, you have all kinds of stuff, like he loves cats, which no guy does. And, you know, you have all kinds of stuff. But you have, you, right, you have relational goals. You have goals of what you want your marriage to be like. You have goals of what you want your kids to be like. And for all of us, and again, this, this can go in any area of life. Whatever area of life you care about, you probably have a goal 
or an outcome, whether you've ever sat down to take the time to write it out or to think about it or to articulate it concisely, you have goals in almost every area of life that you care about. Now, here's the thing, and here's kind of the premise for this entire series called Indispensable. In every area that you care about results, in every area that you currently in consistency consistently see results, there is what we call the results temptation. The results temptation. And here's the results temptation. We all have tendencies in areas that we care about results to see those results. And at some point along the way of seeing results, neglect the core principle that drove those results in the first place. That is to say, we get so consumed with outcomes. We get so consumed with what we see, with what we can measure, with what's tangible. That our goal becomes that result so strongly to the point where it degrades and sometimes completely negates the driving principles of the core ideas that drove us to the results in the first place. Let me give you a couple examples just so we're all on the same page with this thing. For some of us, for some of you, you know, you have career goals, and so you picked an educational path, and at some point the education got less important and the goal got more important. And so you will gladly sacrifice your education to get to that goal. You'll cheat, you'll copy, I mean, copyright, it doesn't even matter, you know? Because I got 20 pages due, and it's midnight, and it's due at like 12.30, and you're like, holy cow. So you got a result, you got to meet. For some of us, um, you know, fitness is a goal for you. And for some of us, you know, fitness and a healthy living and a healthy lifestyle turned out as a wonderful thing and you were eating right and you were exercising right. But then somewhere along the way, you got so consumed with results that you started to make choices that were terribly unhealthy. But it didn't matter because you wanted the result. So you can starve your body. I mean, eating disorders all over the place. And it simply started because you had a goal what you wanted to look like. Guys, we can take all kinds of stuff and we can put all kinds of toxic stuff in our body because of what we want to look like. You know, relationally, this, this has implications. For some of us, you know, actually, for some of us, you know this couple, and hopefully you're not this couple in the room, but if you are, hey, just break up later. It's easy. Um, unless you're married, then it gets complicated. Anyways, so relationally, you know, you, you've seen this, you have, you have friends, you have a couple, and they're like the couple that they like hinge their entire relationship on the fact that they never argue, and we never argue, and you kidding me, we're just so compatible, we never argue. And they, they ignore the core principle that one of the keystones, one of the foundational principles that drives relational satisfaction and relational happiness is communication. Because you find a couple that doesn't fight, you oftentimes, in fact, most times, and you might be the exception, find a couple that doesn't communicate. And so resentment builds, communication doesn't happen. Then at the end of the day, they end up breaking up or even worse, divorce. And you end up saying, well, what happened? I thought you guys didn't fight. We didn't until the end. And then it all came out at the same time. And then you got the other couple, and you maybe know this couple. They just fight all the freaking time. You know, it's just like, no, 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 no. And they're like, but no, we communicate great. You know, it's like. Or maybe you're not compatible. You know what I mean? There's also a compatibility factor when it comes to relationships. Now, now, 
all that stuff's kind of fun, and you, know, you can integrate that. You don't necessarily have to be a Christian to, to realize that's, that that's a part of reality. But here's why that's important. Here's why all that stuff is important. Because as much as that's true in every area of life, as much as you can look at any area of life that you care about, that you find value behind, that there is a result or there's an outcome associated with it, as much as you can look at, at any area of life and feel that temptation to care more about the results than the key components, the key factors, the key ideas that drive those results, that happens Every day, spiritually. That happens in every church in America. That is to say, in every church, there are results. And every church defines success based on their results, as you do, and as I do in every area of our life. Because the results determine our success. And so for churches, every church in America looks at a result. Some of them it's growth, some of them it's numbers, some of it's how many people are in community groups. Some of them, it's, you know, how much are we taking in? How much the offering? But in every church in America, there are results. And oftentimes what happens is churches get so consumed with results, they negate the core principles that drove the results or the outcomes in the first place. And here's the danger with that. Almost every time we focus on the results and not the principles that drive the results, our results are both unsustainable and almost always hurt someone. Our results are almost always unsustainable and almost always hurt someone. And in fact, that might be your story of when you walked into church this morning. You encountered a Christian at some point. Or you encountered a group of Christians at some point. Or you encountered maybe an entire church at some point. And they were going for a particular result And they were going so much for that particular result, they forgot some of the core teachings of Jesus. And you looked at them, and you thought, well, if you guys are Christians, if your church is a Christian, if you as a pastor, you're a Christian, then how could you say that? How could you treat people like that? How could you look at people like that? And here's why. It's not because they woke up and thought, well, morning, man, I can't wait to be hypocritical today. I just, man, I'm going to blow the doors off hypocrisy. Just wait till I get to church. They woke up. And the reason that churches are hypocritical is because one day one person woke up and they saw something that they wanted to be. And they were going so hard after that, they negated and neglected some of the core teachings of Jesus. And maybe for some of you, church was difficult to get to this morning, but not because it was early but because you've been hurt by a person, you've been hurt by a church, you've been hurt maybe by a church leader who at some point in their life, or maybe the entire congregation, denied some of the core principles that drive what churches could and should be. So what we wanted to do is spend three weeks and talk about what are the things that we feel like as a church we can't miss? I mean, if we get other stuff wrong, sure, nobody's perfect. But what are the core principles for us as a church that absolutely drive everything we are and everything that we do? And more specifically, what are the core things, what are the critical things to my faith and to your faith? Because the church is just a collection of individuals. So what are the things that we individually are just indispensable I mean, if we miss everything else, if we miss here, we miss there, I mean, come on, everybody makes mistakes. But, but what are the things that for your faith and for my faith are just indispensable to becoming the people 
that God's called us to be and to becoming the church that God's called us to be. So the next three weeks, we're going to talk about the things that we feel like, and since, honestly, the inception of our church are the indispensable principles that drive everything that we do. And we feel like are the indispensable principles that should drive everything that you do as a Christian. And are the indispensable principles that should drive everything, if you're not a Christian, kind of the outside looking in a little bit skeptical, should drive every single person who you see who calls themselves a Christian. Now, to kick off our discussion and talk about the first principle today, we're going to go to the book of Romans. If you've got your Bible, feel free to open up. Romans is the first book, um, first letter that's accounted for in the New Testament. Now, if, if you don't know much about the Bible, let me give you a, kind of a brief overview of how this whole thing plays out. So the Old Testament was all about pre-Jesus. It was kind of how people related to God. Testament was a covenant. Covenant was an agreement. So it was an agreement between God and man, how God and man would interact together. The premise of the relationship between God and men is God is holy, God is pure, God is perfect. Me and you, we're just not. We mess up, we sin, we make mistakes. That's not this like, oh my gosh, you sinner, you're going to hell. It's like, hey, we're all sinners. We've all messed up. We've all done stuff that we knew we shouldn't have done. And because of that, there's this gap between us and God. And so the entire Old Testament, the agreement was people would have faith in God, but this faith in God would be marked by this system of sacrifices, that I tried to behave my way into God's good graces, and you tried to behave your way into God's good graces. And when we inevitably fell short, we would make a sacrifice. We would kill a lamb, we would kill a duck, we would kill a chicken, a goat, you know what I mean? Whatever it was we would kill, depending on the sin that we made. And that would appease, or that would make right our relationship with God, was the thought process. Well, the New Testament came on, Jesus came on. And all of a sudden, it was a drastic new way of viewing man's relationship with God. It was no more about behavior. It was no more about, you know, behavior modification. You got to do this, and you shouldn't do that. You know, all these rules and these lists. Now, it was simply about this guy named Jesus that came... And he died. And his death death was the ultimate sacrifice. That if anybody put their faith and their hope and their trust in that sacrifice, then they would in fact be right with God. And so as this happened, it drastically changed the landscape of people's relationship with God. And most of the New Testament is written around how this new interaction between God and man works out. Now, in the book of Romans, Romans, if you've ever read Romans before, you know this. If you haven't, then maybe you're unfamiliar. Romans is probably the deepest theological book. It's the closest thing that we have to systematic theology in the New Testament or really in the Bible in general. And Paul, as he's beginning this whole discourse in the book of Romans, he writes kind of a preamble. And in his preamble to this church at Rome, as he's penning this letter, writes something that we feel like is the primary, not like one of the, is the primary indispensable part of your faith and of my faith. It is the core principle that quite literally drives every single thing that we do as a church. So, kick off our discussion, we'll be in Romans chapter 1. So it says, Paul, Paul's the fellow who's writing it. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, a little story about that. Christ, Jesus, Christ. Some of you, you've heard of Jesus Christ. So Christ, Jesus sounds weird. Could you think like no one would call you Kemp for Ben? Like Christ is his last name. Jesus is his first name. Christ was a Greek way of saying Messiah. When you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament was mostly written in Hebrew. And so in Hebrew, this word Messiah was translated to Christ in the Greek. So in other words, he's saying, okay, so I, Paul, am a servant of the Messiah. The Messiah that people have been talking about for generations and generations. And that Messiah's name is Jesus. 
He said, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And again, here's what, here's what the gospel is. Gospel means good news. And so as Paul would write to people, as Paul would tell people about Jesus, they genuinely felt like this was good news. And again, the good news was simple. The good news was easy. The good news was the fact that you no longer had to behave your way into God's good graces. The good news was, no matter what you've done in your past, no matter how crazy your you know, business trip was, no matter how crazy your spring break was, no matter how you know, crazy last Friday night was, no matter what you did, in fact, no matter where you were from, and in fact, no matter who you were, because at that time, they had all these thoughts that only the Gentiles, only the, Gen- or only the Jews, only the Jews, only the Jews were God's people. And now it was for everybody. Now, that's huge. Because for some of you, you walked in, and you were thinking, man, I'm going to go to church, but I'm definitely not a religious type of person, and in fact, nobody in my family is a very religious person. My friends aren't religious people. And you walked in today thinking, this just isn't for me. And here's here's what Jesus is saying. Here's Here's what the gospel is. That no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, and more importantly, no matter what you've ever done, God, through Jesus, has made a way for you to be right with him. That when Jesus died on the cross, it was to wipe away all the sin that you've ever done and all the sin that you ever will do. And it's simply by placing your faith and your hope and your trust in that sacrifice. And this blew up the early church. This blew up the ancient Roman world as it started to go and go and go. So Paul says, the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So he's talking about the Old Testament. He says, okay, so there's been a lot of prophets. There's been generations on generations of people who have said, there's going to come a guy. There's going to come a guy. There's going to come a Messiah. There's going to come a Messiah. And he was the fulfillment of that. Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with the power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Now, so that's what he's saying. Okay, so there's this guy, Jesus, and, and he was prophesied about and prophesied about and prophesied about. He was the son of God. He had the right lineage, and on top of that, he died. You know, a lot of people died, but here's what really was their claim to fame in the early church, the resurrection. Tons of people went away from it. Tons of people walked away from their faith as soon as Jesus died. But then when a dead guy showed back up, I mean, it just changed the game. And this was their message, to go tell as many people as possible about this. Now, Paul says this. Through him being Jesus. Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from, the, from among the Gentiles. So he's gonna, about to go into his results here. He's about to say, okay, so here's what we're calling people to do. We're calling everybody. We're calling the Jews, but more specifically right now, I'm talking about the Gentiles because they're the ones that don't think that they're going to be able to have God. And here's what we're going to call them to do. We're going to call people to the obedience. Now, pause for a second. Obedience, obedience, obedience is huge. And here's why. Your obedience in my obedience. When you think of results when it comes to your relationship with God, when you think of results as it, as it relates to spirituality, for most of us, our obedience to God, our obedience to the teachings of God, our obedience to the teachings of Scripture, however you define obedience, for most of us is the outcome or the result that benchmarks success. In other words, for most of us, if I were to ask you, or maybe for some of you had a youth pastor when you were growing up, 
Maybe you had a community group leader. Maybe you had a good friend. And they would ask you a question. They'd say, how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing spiritually? And you'd probably answer that question, good or bad, depending on how obedient you've been. And most times, that obedience is defined by the area of your life that is, has a tendency to be the most sinful. So, for instance, for you, if you're a greedy person, you know, you just want it all for yourself, and it's all about you, it's all about you, it's all about you, and you have that tendency, and you're a Christian, then chances are, when you think about how your relationship with God's going, you define that by how generous you've been. Oh, I've been great, I've been generous. For you, if the main area of your life that you have a difficulty with, that you have this habitual sin problem, is lust, then chances are, depending on how pure you've been, is how you would define and how you would say you're doing. And it's simple. Because obedience in the realm of spirituality, where so much is just kind of mystical, so much is up in the air, so much is untangible, our obedience, my obedience, your obedience, is oftentimes how we benchmark success when it comes to our relationship with God. But here's the problem. Every time we have an outcome, we have a tendency to focus solely on that outcome and not on the core principle that drives the outcome. You see, for most of us, when we talk about stuff and you've maybe gone to a church and somebody talked about this sin or that sin or, you know, lust, pride, you know, whatever it is, And you walked away thinking like, gosh, I'm a horrible person. For most of us, the idea is that we walk away from that trying to try harder, obey more. But obedience is an outcome. Obedience is a result. And there is something far greater and far stronger that drives your obedience that is the indispensable principle. So here's what he says. He says, through him, and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to obedience. That, by the way, comes from, that is produced by, or that is driven by, that is the result of faith. That's the result of faith. In other words, the thing that drives your obedience as a Christian is not your trying harder. The thing that drives obedience as a Christian is your faith. It's you growing in your relationship with God. You growing in your love for God. And a love for God drives obedience. Oftentimes, we try to have our obedience substantiate and validate a missing love for God. You see, here's what I mean by that. About, this is probably five, six, seven, ten, who knows how many years ago at this point. I was just out of college, and I led a, I led a Bible study for a group of college students. We were going through First uh, John. If you ever read through First John, you get to chapter 2, and it's just like gut check, I suck at life. You know, you, maybe you read that part of the Bible or other parts of the Bible that you read through, and you're like, it's not uplifting. You didn't hear like bells and whistles and angels. You're like, oh my gosh, I love Jesus. It's like, no, I just realized how much I suck as a person. And at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, this is how you know that you have come to know me. And he says, basically, that you obey my commands. And so we went through this whole thing. We talked about obeying commands and what's your areas of weakness and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And we just, you know, we're really delving into it. And as we got into it, you know, we got to the end. 
And it was kind of one of those things where as a leader, you're like, gosh, what do I say next? You know, everybody feels like they're about to go, I don't know. I was going to say something very, very, very sadistic at that point, but social filter kicked in. So you just feel like you're about to go do something, you know, you're just going to go home and like cry or something. You know, it's just like, I, you know, I'm terrible. Let me go eat a bunch of pizza and watch Netflix and feel bad about myself. It's a better way to go on that one. So anyways... So you just, you know, you felt bad about yourself. And so we got to the end and said, you know, so what do you, you know, how do you feel? And everybody kind of walked away saying, gosh, I just feel like I'm, I'm bad. Gosh, I just feel like I just need to go, like, sin less. Gosh, I just feel like I need to go try harder, you know. And then that, that's common. But at the beginning of it, he gives the indicator to it, which is simply to say, this is how that you know that you know him. In other words, if your obedience is bad, it's not an obedience problem, it's a knowing him problem. The key that drives our obedience to God, the key that drives everything that we do as Christians isn't simply trying harder. It's growing in a relationship, it's growing your faith, and it's growing in a love for God. That is the driving factor behind everything that we do as Christians. And as Christians, it's so easy to fall into the temptation of obedience, 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 obedience. And somehow we feel like if we can obey enough, then we're going to be good enough, and my relationship with God is good. And that was never the case. Obedience was always, always, always a result of your relationship and my relationship with God. But obedience is a result. And so we have a tendency to focus more on obedience than we do on God. So let me kind of tell you a story about me that I think, to me, summarizes this whole thing. It was actually the first thing I ever learned as a Christian. When I, um, when I first became a Christian, I was probably a lot like some of you are, or maybe some of you were. And I had just this mountain of sin and this mountain of stuff that I just felt like, you know, Man, I'd like to become a Christian, but I mean, I'm just too bad. I'm never going to be that type of person. I'm never going to be the type of person. You know, I mean, I just got so much stuff to quit, so much stuff that I would have to start doing. It just seems so insurmountable. I went to this thing. I was in ninth grade called Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and I heard a guy speak. And for the first time, he talked about Jesus in a way that made sense to me. For the first time, he talked about Jesus in a way that he died for my sins. And my thought was really simple. Honestly, it was a bit transactional. It was that, Jesus, if you would die for me, then I'll give my life for you. If you would give my, your life for me so that I could have, you know, a relationship with God so that I could go to heaven someday, sure. I'll follow you. That's not a big deal. It makes sense. And from that point, as many of you have been in that situation where you kind of decided to follow Jesus, you didn't know what it meant, you didn't know all the implications, it just made sense to you at the time. And as I started to follow Jesus, in the very early stages, the first couple weeks, the first couple months of being a Christian, Man, I just had all this stuff. Because for me, when I saw people who were Christians, some of you, this is your story that you, you know, you see all this hypocrisy, and you see all this stuff, and it just drives you away from the church. For me, it was like, man, I see sports, I see girls, and I see drugs, and that just sounds like way more fun. And that was as simple as it was for me. And that day, I gave my life to Christ. I just had this mountain of stuff that I feel like, man, if I'm going to be a Christian, i got to stop. i got to quit. And I could never see myself as the person. Some of you guys, man, we talk now, and you know me as a pastor. But if you would have known me back then, you would have thought, no stinking way. Because I, I mean, I mean, come on. The type of person that reads their Bible, the type of person that prays consistently, are you kidding me? That's not me at all. Like, 
I would lose friends just because I had such a bad mouth. I had, you know, multiple friends who now go to this church. It's kind of funny who I was the one that got them to start doing drugs. And now I'm like, hey, you should come to church now. You know, it kind of creates an interesting dynamic. Some of them, honestly, they're in my community group now. I'm like, fellas, let's read now. So anyways, so I had this whole list of things that I had to stop doing and I felt like I should stop doing. And some of you, you've been in that boat where you had this list, you have this mountain, you have this thing. You know, for some of you, you're thinking about faith. And as you think about faith, you're thinking there's no way I could be a Christian because what you view as people are Christians who do all the things that they should do and don't do all the things that they shouldn't do. You're thinking they just have so much personal will and I could never do all that. And so I remember being exhausted at times and thinking I would never get it. Huge areas of sin that I would just never conquer. And then, one of the things that I felt like I needed to do, which was the cornerstone, which was the catalytic moment, which was the first lesson that I ever learned as a Christian, is I felt like, you know what? I've never read the Bible for myself. So I started in Matthew. read a chapter a day. Took about five minutes. Honestly, didn't, understood, didn't understand half of it. But I kept reading. Next day, I'd come back to a chapter. Next day, chapter three. Next day, chapter four. Just started working my way through the scriptures. And then I started to pray. And let me just tell you, if you never like prayed by yourself before, that's kind of a weird thing. It might not sound weird because most of my prayers before that time had been like Sonny's prayers. You know what I mean? You pray at Sonny's and everybody puts their head down. It's like, oh, God, you know, is anybody looking good? Okay, spiritual points, you know. God, we pray and bless this food and heavenly father of the third angel, Michael. You know what I mean? You're trying to get super spiritual in your prayers, but you're sitting there for the first time. It's you and it's God. And it's like, God, I think you're listening. <laughs> and frankly, I don't know what to say because I think you know everything. So I'm just going to say some stuff for a little while because I know I'm supposed to pray. And as daily, I started going and having a relationship with God. I spent in time, I was spending time with his, in his word, which is the main way God speaks to us. I started spending time in prayer, which is the main way we speak to God. Those first couple pieces, and here's what I realized about, about two or three months in. That as I focused on growing in a relationship with God, as I started focusing on growing in a love for God, All of those areas of obedience not only got easier to overcome. Here was the weird thing. I didn't want to. I didn't want to. You see, I had always viewed people who obeyed God as they just had this incredible perseverance, this incredible will, this incredible just like unbelievable personal willpower to stop doing stuff and to start doing stuff. And oh my gosh, how could you ever do that? And here's what I realized. Here's what I realized. As I simply focused on developing a relationship with God, as I honestly started every day realizing how much God loves me, out of my realization of God loves from God's love for me, birthed back a love for Him. And as my love for God grew, my obedience flourished. The things that I thought I would never stop doing, I didn't even want to do anymore. And there were some things that, you know, I kind of still wanted to do that would still be fun. But all of a sudden, they were less appealing. I started to grow. And I started to be more obedient. And I remember I was driving down Thomasville Road. And I had this thought about three or four months in. The more I grow in my relationship with God, and the less I focus on obedience, the more obedient I become. And here's why. Because your faith 
Growing in your relationship with God drives everything that you do. It is the preeminent core principle that drives everything that you do as a Christian and drives everything that we do as a church. And chances are somewhere along the way, if you had a terribly negative experience with a Christian, if you had a terribly negative experience with a church, if you're kind of burned by this whole Jesus, Christianity, God thing, it's because somewhere along the way, someone got more focused on obedience than they did loving God, and the result of their obedience was judgmentalism and hypocrisy. They were completely disingenuous about their faith. And as a result, you got hurt because someone else focused on the result and not the fact of simply loving God. Because no church wakes up in the morning. No church wakes up on Sunday morning again and says, hey, we just can't wait to be the most hypocritical church in America. We hope people who don't know Jesus come to our church and they just hate Jesus because of us. Like nobody wakes up and says that. That's nobody's prayer request as they get their you know, little Mary and Martha group together and everybody holds hands and says, hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. You know, it just doesn't happen. But here's, here's, honestly, here's what happens. They face the same temptation that you face, which is the same temptation that I face, which is that we would be more obsessed with obedience than we would with Jesus himself. So for you as a Christian, maybe this lands with you because you're, for, you're currently facing some issue. You're currently facing an obedience issue. You don't know if you can be as obedient to God as you can because of the fraternity that you're in or the sorority that you're in or the job that you work at or the family that you have or the roommates that you have. Maybe you're, you have all that stuff. Man, you just have this incredible Christian community, but you're still struggling and you're still struggling and there's these cyclical patterns of sin that are happening in your life and you feel like you can never be obedient to God like he's called you to be. Here, let me just tell you. If you would take a week, in fact, if you would take a month, but start with the week, and simply focus on growing in your faith, growing in your relationship with God. I promise, I promise, I promise your obedience will grow too. Because obedience is a result of the core principle of a love for God. This is why for us, as a church, when we stood back, you know, a few years back as we were starting... And we said, what's the things that we can't miss? This is the beginning of our mission statement. Love God. Love God. And everything else flows from that. So indispensable week one, you just got to know that your obedience to God is driven by your love for God. And if you ever find yourself in an obedience problem, if you would not focus on obeying, but focus on that which drives everything else in a love for God. I promise everything else begins to fall into place. Now, I want to end by saying this. If you're in here, you're, you know, again, you're on the fence about Christianity. You're not sure where you believe. You're not sure if you, if you get this whole thing. Here's, here's, here's my hope and my prayer for you. I pray that somewhere along the, the way, you encounter a Christian who genuinely loves God. You encounter a Christian who doesn't have an bl obligatory juvenile relationship with God where they force themselves to obey. And you can see it. You can tell when someone's serious. You can tell when someone really loves God and someone who's just in it to fake it. And I pray that that would change your perception of Christians and maybe that would change your perception of Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, you would be open to a God who you weren't initially open to because you saw someone who had 
the core right. Because the core principles always drive the results. And the indispensable principle that we cannot get away from as a church and we cannot get away from as individuals is that everything flows out of a love for God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you this morning. I thank you this morning that, that your word is, is so clear and so obvious. God, I pray for every one of my friends in here who considers themselves a Christian, who has placed their faith and their hope and their trust in you, Jesus. That they would simply focus on the core. They would focus on the indispensable principle of our faith which Jesus is a love for you birthed out of a love for us. That our love for you comes from this continual realization of your love from us as we daily go to you, as we daily encounter you, as we daily spend time with you, as our faith grows, as our dependence on you grows, as our trust in you grows. God, I pray that every other area, obedience included, would follow. I pray that we would be a church of deep and of genuine love for you, God. Because you so deeply and you so genuinely loved us that you gave your son for us. And God, I pray for anyone who's in here, for all my friends who are in here who came in and they're, you know, on the fence, not really sure. Maybe they walked in this morning and their biggest issue regarding the faith was they never thought that they could be the type of person who reads and who prays and who stops the mountain of things that they feel like they need to stop and starts the mountain of things that they feel like maybe they need to start in order to be in your good graces. God, I pray that they would simply start by acknowledging and accepting the sacrifice that you made for us, Jesus, when you came and you died on the cross and you rose again, conquering death. And that our relationship with you wouldn't be this one that's based and contingent on our obedience. But simply on your death and resurrection. And as we focus on that, everything else both grows and flows. So God, I pray anyone in here who's just been burned by the church, hurt by the church, hurt by people, hurt by Christians. That they would see a Christian or maybe a group of Christians who genuinely love you. And that genuine drive to do everything else out of a love for you would perhaps change their perspective on Christians and maybe change their perspective on you, God. But God, I pray for all of us. You would help us. You would give us the strength, give us the power, give us the wisdom to first and foremost love you. And out of that, drive all of the results of our faith. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.